Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Hometown Ghost Stories contains serious and often distressing events and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This week on Hometown Ghost Stories, we head to Chicago, Illinois to cover the most deadly fire in American history, the Iroquois Theater Fire of 1903. We also head deep into Chicago's mob life with one of the most brutal executions ever carried out and the haunting that would follow Al Capone to his grave. This is episode 17 of Hometown Ghost Stories, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre and the Iroquois Theater Fire. December 30th, 1903. Over 1,700 people eagerly entered the newly opened Iroquois Theater in Chicago. The theater was a sight to behold, with 60-foot-high ceilings, white marbled walls, and grand staircases. The Iroquois had just opened five weeks earlier, in November. Men, women, children, and teachers gathered over holiday break to see a musical comedy, Mr. Bluebeard, which featured actors masquerading as animals in an over-the-top live performance. What they didn't know was that one-third of them would not survive that fateful afternoon. I'm Jesse Wilkins, and this is Hometown Ghost Stories, Chicago, Illinois. The building had a capacity of just over 1,600, with three levels. The main floor had 700 seats, the second level had 400 seats, and the third level had around 500. Upon completion, the building was ironically deemed as, quote, absolutely fireproof. However, it was anything but. A Chicago Fire Department captain made an unofficial tour of the theater before its grand opening and noted that there were no sprinklers, no alarms, no telephones, or water connections. It was also noted by an editor of Fireproof Magazine that the wood trim and inadequate provision of exits could prove fatal. The captain pointed out the deficiencies to the Iroquois fire warden, but was told that nothing could be done because the fire warden was basically powerless. In the end, the firefighting equipment on site consisted of just six fire extinguishers. The brand was Kill Fire, and these particular extinguishers were intended to extinguish chimney fires in residential houses. On December 30th at 3.15 p.m., as the show began its second act, a spark from a stage light ignited nearby drapery, The crew attempted to stop the fire using the kill fire extinguishers, but couldn't reach the flames. One of the actors, Eddie Foy, attempted to calm the crowd who was starting to panic. He ordered the orchestra to continue playing as stagehands tried to lower the flame-retardant asbestos curtain, but it kept getting stuck on a lighting fixture. 
The curtain kept going up and down, and the audience continued to panic. They began to flee for the exit. As the flames grew, the lights went out, and the audience members were lost, obscured by smoke and curtains. Metal accordion gates were blocking some of the aisles, which were put in place to prevent people from sneaking into pricier seats. Over 1,700 people were frantically trying to escape the flames. They clogged the aisles, attempting to funnel through the choke points. Eddie Foy, the man who attempted to calm the crowd, later noted that the upper levels were like a, quote, mad animal-like stampede. Their screams, groans, snarls, the scuffle of thousands of feet, and bodies grinding against bodies, merging into a crescendo, half wail, half roar. Cast members seeing the situation getting worse looked for another way out. They opened the rear stage door, which created a backdraft, causing a ball of fire to explode through the theater, incinerating many people who were stuck in the balconies. The blow was powerful enough to burst open one exit door, which actually helped people who were frantically trying to figure out the new and unfamiliar bascule locks, similar to household iceboxes at the time. The crowd who ran for the front door got stuck, as the doors did not push open, because they were built to open inwards. Once they were able to get the doors open, many perished from being trampled and crushed to death on the sides of the doorways because so many people were trying to squeeze through at the same time. Several stagehands and actors escaped from the theater through the coal hatch and through windows in the dressing rooms, but the west stage door also opened inwards and became jammed. They couldn't escape from the vents above the stage because they had been nailed or wired shut. A passing railroad agent saw the crowd pressing against the door and unfastened the hinges from the outside using tools that he happened to be carrying, allowing some of the actors to escape. An upper-level fire escape was found, but it was missing the ladder that would lead to the ground. Men who were working in the building next door saw the chaotic scene and created a makeshift bridge using planks to help the people escape. But the first people to try to cross slipped off the bridge and fell to their deaths. Within minutes, hundreds perished inside the theater, unable to find a way out. Many more fell to their death attempting to use the fire escapes. Some were able to survive the jump, but only after enough dead bodies had piled up below them in the alley to break their fall. To this day, the street below is now known as Death Alley. Many inside tried climbing over the piles of bodies that had stacked 10 feet high around some of the blocked exits. The victims were either killed by the fire, the smoke, the gases, or they were crushed to death by other terrified people behind them. In total, almost 600 people are estimated to have died on that day and roughly 30 died of injuries in the following weeks. The number could be higher, as during the chaos, many people picked up the bodies of their loved ones before they could be counted. There also wasn't an exact headcount of the people that were in the building because of the standing room-only tickets that were sold. Ghost sightings at the theater began before the fire even went out. Pictures taken of the fire and the burned theater show strange blobs of light and mist that some say are the spirits of audience members that have perished in the flames. The theater was soon reopened under various names and was torn down 20 years later. The Oriental Theater was built on the same location in 1926, and it would thrive until the 1970s, then shut down in 1981. In 1998, the theater reopened to host Broadway shows, and many of its employees say that some of the spirits never left. Ghosts have been seen in the balcony seats, and when staff members are sent to go see who's up there, they disappear. The ghost of Nellie Reed an aerialist who died a few days after the fire from severe burns, has been seen roaming the theater, still wearing the burned tutu that she was wearing on the night of her final show. The ghost of a young girl has been spotted. She could be heard giggling and even flushing one of the backstage toilets. Her laugh has been picked up on audio recordings on several occasions, and she could be heard in the hallways next to the main auditorium. Employees who work late at night report seeing shadow figures that they call soft shapes. 
They are seen dashing through the empty auditorium towards the locations where the fire exits would have been in 1903. Female staff members report being threatened and harassed by a disembodied male voice in the sub-basement sitting below street level. Historians believe that this ghost was not from the fire, but could be from the 19th century, when that section of Randolph Street was known as the Hair Trigger Block, home to one of the most rowdy gambling parlors in the city. Following the incident, a number of city officials were brought to trial for negligence, but most of them got off on technicalities. The only people that were ever successfully prosecuted for the crimes were the ones that robbed the dead bodies, taking rings off of fingers, necklaces, and money out of the pockets of the dead. The Iroquois Theater Fire, Chicago, Illinois. The St. Valentine's Day Massacre George Bugs Moran grew up in Minnesota and joined a juvenile gang, leaving school at 18 and landing himself in prison three times before his 21st birthday. By 1920, Moran had made his way to Chicago, joining the Northside Gang with Jaime Weiss, and as Prohibition went into full swing, their gang would clash with the Chicago outfit, led by Johnny Torrio, on the South Side. A turf war would ensue as the rival gangs would battle for territory in the gambling and bootlegging scene. Johnny Torrio's gang murdered Northside gang leaders Dion O'Banion at his flower shop, and the Northside gang would retaliate and attempt to assassinate Torrio and Al Capone. Bugs and his enforcers would fire over 1,000 shots at Capone's headquarters at the Hawthorne Inn and at a nearby restaurant, but the assassination attempt would fail. In retaliation, Capone's crew would take out Jaime Weiss, leaving Moran as the new leader of the Northside gang. Twelve days later, on January 24, 1925, Moran and his crew would attempt to take out Johnny Torrio, shooting him several times on his way back from a shopping trip with his wife. Torrio survived the attack but was rattled, and he resigned, handing the $70 million operation over to 26-year-old Al Capone. Word had begun to circulate that Capone had put out a hit on Moran. As weeks passed and nothing seemed out of order, the gang would let their guard down, as the threats seemed to be just rumors. On the morning of February 14, 1929, Six members of the Northside gang entered the SMC Cartage Company garage, waiting for a meeting with Moran and a shipment of bootleg liquor. As Bugs approached the garage, he noticed a police car slowly circling the block, and he got spooked. Moran decided to head to a coffee shop instead, as he didn't want to be spotted by authorities. At roughly 10.30 a.m., a vehicle approached the garage and parked outside. Four men got out of the car, two dressed as police officers with their guns drawn, and two mobsters carrying Tommy guns. The two men who were dressed as officers entered the garage, taking the gang by surprise. They seized the six gangsters' sidearms and had them line up against a brick wall. They also grabbed the mechanic and lined him up alongside the men. The two mobsters entered the room, and all four of them opened fire, firing roughly 70 shots and killing six of them instantly. They even finished off two of them with point-blank shotgun shots. Frank Gusenberg, one of the North Side gang members who was shot, miraculously survived the initial attack. And while he died laying in his hospital bed from 14 gunshot wounds, police repeatedly tried to get information out of him on the killers. But his response over and over again was, Nobody shot me. Frank died three hours after the attack from his wounds. The victims were the two enforcers, Frank and Peter Gusenberg, Moran's second-in-command, James Clark, bookkeeper, Adam Heyer, Ryan Hartschweimer, the mechanic, John May, and Albert Weinshank, who the assassins apparently mistook for George Bugs Moran and subsequently set off the massacre. The assassin spotted Albert entering the garage and thought he was Bugs. Weinshank was a spitting image of Moran and matched his description with the same build and similar clothes, so the assassins moved in. Right after the shooting, curious bystanders gathered outside the garage. The two men dressed as officers escorted the other two men out of the building and led them into the unmarked black police Cadillac outside. 
to the public, this looked like the police had been responding to the shooting and arrested the two responsible. But this was clearly their plan from the beginning. When Moran was asked about the killings, he told authorities, only Capone kills like that. Police immediately suspected Al Capone had orchestrated the hit. Capone himself was in Florida at the time of the massacre, and when he was questioned about the murders, he retaliated by saying, quote, only George Moran would kill like that. Although Moran was never taken out, with many top members of his gang now dead, his operation would never recover, and he would die a penniless man of lung cancer in 1957. Police would eventually hone in on machine gun Jack McGurn and John Scalise, two of Capone's enforcers for the massacre. It turns out the shipment of bootleg liquor they were expecting to receive on February 14th was set up by McGurn in an attempt to ambush the Northside gang. Capone would end up murdering Scalise, along with two others, in May of 1929 after he learned about their plot to have him killed and police would eventually drop the charges against Machine Gun Jack because of lack of evidence. Jack's alibi was that he was with his girlfriend at the time, Louise Rolfe. The two would coincidentally get married shortly after the shooting, ensuring that she would not have to testify against him. This earned Louise the nickname, The Blonde Alibi. In the end, the case went cold, and nobody was ever convicted of the seven murders that took place on that snowy Valentine's Day morning. While Capone denied being involved in the massacre, the truth would literally haunt him until his dying day. In May of 1929, Capone was serving a one-year prison stint on weapons charges. Al was tormented day and night by the ghost of James Clark, one of the men killed in the Valentine's Day shooting. Guards and inmates reported hearing Capone begging Jimmy's ghost to leave him alone. The haunting did not stop after he was released from prison. Capone was constantly begging the spirit of Jimmy to leave him alone. His bodyguards would burst into his apartment thinking an intruder had entered, only to learn that Al was talking to a ghost. On one occasion... Jaime Cornish, who was Capone's valet, spotted a man in Al's apartment. Cornish immediately ordered the man to identify himself, but the figure slipped behind a curtain and vanished. Capone insisted that the figure that Cornish spotted that day was the ghost of James Clark, who continued to haunt and torment him until his death in 1947. Today, there is not much left of the infamous garage where the massacre took place. The building had attracted many visitors who wanted to see the morbid sight for themselves, but ultimately, it was demolished in 1967. The wall where the seven men were lined up and assassinated was dismantled and the bricks were auctioned off piece by piece. Many of the people who purchased these bricks would regret their decision. Some claim that these bullet-ridden bricks were cursed, leading to poverty, sickness, and death. Many returned the bricks shortly after. 414 of these bricks were purchased by a Canadian businessman, George Patey, who brought them to his Banjo Palace nightclub in Vancouver, placing them behind glass in the men's room. The bricks would eventually end up in Las Vegas, Nevada, where the wall would be reconstructed inside the Mob Museum, where you can still visit it today. The SMC Cartage Company garage is now not much more than a parking lot for a nursing home. People who visit the area claim to hear disembodied screams and gunshots, some claiming that their dogs will briefly panic when passing by the location, perhaps sensing the spirits that still lurk in the area.
Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. This is episode number 17 of Hometown Ghost Stories. I'm Jesse Wilkins. That's Rob Coakley. That's Dave Wilkins. And that was Chicago, Illinois. Two serious stories with the Iroquois theater burning and then the uh, St. Valentine's Day massacre. And, uh, you know, the, like after last week's episode, I was like, I was like, there's so many deaths. And then I was going to investigate uh, a place in Florida that had a haunted CVS and no story to back it up. And I was like, you know what? I need more death. <laughs> so I pulled up two of the biggest cases I could find and, and knocked it out. And it's a Valentine's Day theme, right? Look at that. Yeah, you are only 364 days early on that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, no, I actually, I found this story. I knew about the St. Valentine's Day massacre, obviously. Like, if you're into the mob, you know that story for the most part. I wasn't aware of the hauntings surrounding it and the brick wall part. But for me, that theater story was what really intrigued me more than anything. You know, that like, story is wild. When I, when I first started doing the story, like I was getting like goosebumps and these eerie similarities to the Titanic, yeah. which is, you know, obviously what you were doing each other. Yeah, I remember it. Uh, but, but there was a couple of things for one. It was like, you know, all the safety precautions that were just completely ignored just to yeah. rush it through and get it going. And then it was, once the ship started sinking or the theater started burning, the guy was, he ordered the orchestra to keep playing. Yeah. Just like on the Titanic. And mm. then, uh, the I'd rather be on the Titanic if I had to choose one drown or, or burn to death. Yeah. yeah. I'd probably uh, I'd rather drown as well. Then th- there was one other similarity and I can't remember what it was, but there was, a, it was just like, just eerie, just eerie. I'm, I'm like, and this is right around the same time too. So the, um, do you know if they tore down the, sorry, we have a question here. So, uh, Catherine asked, do you know if they tore down the original theater for the history hauntings or for other development? They tore it down uh, because it was absolutely destroyed. And they put it, they, they just built another theater. They ended up building the uh, Oriental Theater there. Um, I don't know if they, I mean, they probably kept the bones of it, but not the human bones, but like the, the bones of the building. And uh, probably just reconstructed it from there. Well, it wasn't but, just the uh, theater that burnt, was it? It was also a few surrounding buildings, I thought. Or uh, maybe I'm confusing. I might be conflating two. You're probably confusing it with the the great fire of Chicago, that might which, be uh, yeah. which which was a different time. But this theater fire actually had more deaths than that whole great Chicago fire. Um, th- but obviously, there was you know practically the whole city burned in the great fire. It was just with with this one there was uh, there was more deaths. <clears throat> Uh, Dorico says that would be rather sinister if they kept the human bones. <laughs> yeah. Well, I said bones and I was like, well, there are also, you know, a lot of human bones there. Um, and then, uh, Soph says, uh, one of the photos of the theater looked like it was during the fire. Did someone take out the camera mid fire? So there were some pictures like, I mean, it was still smoldering, but obviously it wasn't while it was still absolutely raging, but a lot of those older pictures, um, they went in like, right as it was still, you know, basically being put out and they took pictures and those were the first like ghost pictures too. And you wonder how much of it is smoke or whatever, but a lot of people say like, like there was some eerie mists and some glowing orbs. There was one picture that we showed in the video, which had like a, a circle um, of like light. Yeah. So there, there were some eerie pictures and everything. So they said the haunting started right away in that building. And what a terrifying story that is. And the, the, the even sadder part about that is, I mean, obviously, when you have 600 people dead, it's super sad, but it was a ton of kids, like way more than normal. And that guy, Eddie, uh, Eddie Foy, the one that, um, that kind of had his, his account of it that he wrote about after, he also wrote about how he had never seen so many kids in the, the 
um, in the theater. And that was because it was during school break because it was right near Christmas. And um, that just makes it even more sad. So a lot of teachers, a lot of kids that perished in that fire. And uh, what reminds me a lot of the Victoria Hall, the Victoria Hall tragedy. Have you guys heard of that? No. No. So I don't I don't want to go like too deep into it because I don't know if there's any hauntings associated with it, but basically another theater like this in the eighteen hundreds in England, there was a show going on in the afternoon and it was for kids. It was like mostly kids three to fourteen in it. Parents dropped their kids off. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the show they announced that certain tickets were gonna win a prize. So they opened the doors to let the kids down near the stage. And as they did that, they only cracked it open a little bit to try to keep the stage, the doors orderly. What ended up happening is the kids still rushed the doors and it caused a log jam and almost 200 kids died. Wow. Which is freaking bananas. That's crazy because it wasn't even in like... There was no fire, no, not like they just rushed the door. They had that same problem in the Iroquois Theater, which was... And this was one of the things that they, you know, they would warn them about was like, hey, these doors aren't wide enough. And um, and people, a lot of people died, not from the fire, not from the smoke, but because they got squished against the edge of the door because so many people were trying to jam through at the same time. So, you know, you had people dying from getting trampled, but you also had people dying just getting crushed at the, on like the, the side of the door frame. That Which happened at uh, the, the um, Rhode Island nightclub fire. It was Rhode Island, right? Yeah. And um because I had no, I, I knew a guy who was, was the there. Great, was it the Great White concert the or great something? Great White, yeah, the band. And um, I knew a guy who was there. And he was talking about that one. He said the same thing. And his 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 buddy actually died in that fire. And what happened was they were doing the exact same thing. They were trying to rush through the doorway. And the guy I know he got through, but his buddy got stuck, and he was trying to pull his buddy out, pull it by the arm, and just could not, couldn't get him, couldn't get him. They're all screaming. Uh, yeah, that's at the Station Nightclub fire. Um, and he, you know. The, what he, he said, what I, he's like, what I remember was he, everyone was screaming, everyone was screaming. I was trying to pull my buddy out, and then they just like stopped screaming. Nobody was screaming anymore. And he's like, and they turned around, and you know, uh, trigger warning is very graphic. He said they were just all melted together, Oof. which was holy shit. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. that's horrible. Nightmares forever for that. that so one. this is like the big problem for this stuff is they get these these log jams and. It's, even without a fire, as we just said, there was almost 200 kids killed just because of a log jam at a, door, at a doorway. That's so you have fire to that, and it's just a recipe for disaster. So it, it's it's a super. I, I actually I love I like well liked is not the word I want to say. I was intrigued by the story, and then intrigued by some of the ghosts that you hit on the little girl that kind of runs mm-hmm. around pulling like pranks it sounds like in the in the theater and was it a trapeze artist as well an aerialist which sounds like it would probably be the same thing yeah so that that's pretty cool yeah Um, she died uh she died a few days after but it was from you know she was badly burned so obviously it was injuries from the fire that caused her death but there's supposed to be a residual haunting where she uh she's still seen some people say they see her still with a burnt tutu so um I'm glad we hit a, a haunted theater because that's like to me one of the the creepy ones. Uh, it's haunted theaters, castles. Yeah, there was um, one in um you know. in San Antonio. I think I left it out of the episode. I don't know if we talked about it or not though. But with that, I remember 
And I think it was just because it's like um, like a tail. Like I, I don't, I couldn't find anything verified on it, but apparently there was like a lightning fixture that fell and crushed a whole line of ballerinas. And uh, they were supposed to have all died. But this is just like the word around town. I, I couldn't find any like news clippings on it or anything like that. So I think that's why I had left it out. But that place was supposed to be haunted as well. I'm not entirely sure if it was San Antonio or if I'm mixing up my cities there. But yeah, we finally got a... Uh, don't remember there. that one from the San Antonio ghost tour. <clears throat> I don't think it was in the tour. I think it was just in my research afterwards. So there was that. But yeah, this uh, this one, I mean... um close to 600. They don't really know the real number. And I had mentioned in the episode, but it, w- it could be a lot higher because at this point they were already over capacity. They sold 1700 tickets to a show that only had 1600 seats or 1500 seats. And then they also had standing room only seats and they sold a ton of these. So all of the aisles were just jam packed with people standing, watching the show. And so that just adds to the absolute mayhem. As soon as the fire starts, it's just these people had nowhere to go. And then the, the worst part I briefly mentioned in the episode is as soon as things started going crazy, the lights went out. So it was also pitch black. The only light they had was the source of the mm. fire. So all you could see is just your impending doom approaching you as oh, these people are all trying to scramble for the exits that they don't know where they are. So people on the balcony are getting stuck because they have those uh, accordion gates that blocked um, the hallways, so people couldn't sneak into more expensive seats. They found fire escapes. A lot of them, the doors wouldn't even open. Uh, a lot of the windows just led to other rooms. They didn't lead outside. Then they find the fire escapes. They can't open the locks because the locks have these like ice box locks on them, which were popular at the time, but they were brand new at the time. So a lot of people looked at these locks and they didn't even know how to open the things. So um, there was one like baseball player who had just bought one of those ice boxes or whatever. So he like kind of wedged his way to the front. He's like, I know how to open that. And boom, and it popped it open. They got out. But then when they got out, now they're on a fire escape. And they never put the ladders in on the fire escape. Oh my God. So this is what led to the alley of death. Some call it death alley. I think it's more commonly called alley of death. So a little correction of there, but obviously the same thing. Um, so people, it, it basically the, the scene was described as the people that were in the front finally got the door. And they're like, Oh, we're free. All right, let's get this ladder and get down. There's no ladder. And the people behind them are panicking. They're yeah, saying, go, 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 sure. go, go. So they just start pushing and people just start tumbling off, you know, like, um, like sheep falling off a cliff, basically, you know, like they just keep going and there's nothing they can do. And then um, I guess on one side you had, you know, some construction workers that were in a building next door. They built that kind of makeshift bridge, but it was just either a ladder or planks of wood or both. And the first people that started crossing just started falling off. And then they did get some people out of there. And then um, I don't know if it was that fire escape or one of the ones that didn't have a ladder at all. That was people only started surviving the fall when there was enough dead bodies stacked below them to break their fall. And it's just, just chaos, just chaos. And this was all within like 15 minutes. It's just banana. It's insane. What buildings got away with back in the day, even when they're told like this, this isn't good. You guys got to fix this. There's like, nah, I thought of the other thing that reminded me of the, uh, the Titanic was they deemed this building. They're like, this is the fireproof building. Yeah. The the Why Titanic would you say the, that? Just like the Titanic was the unsinkable ship. That was if, the other thing that they said. I'm in some sort of building for any, for a venue or for any event. And they're like, by the way, it's fireproof or like, it's impossible to catch fire. I'd be like, why are you telling me that? That's weird. It's insane. And then you had the, 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 the fire chief went in and did like an unofficial inspection, which he's probably lucky that it was an unofficial inspection because he found so many things wrong with this place. If he allowed that place to open, uh, he would have been on the line there. But it's like they say it's like, oh, it's it's uh, it can't, it can't catch on fire, but all of the trim is made of wood. Yeah, it's like now, those are some of the things he pointed out. He pointed out let's, that. Uh, 
Let's test this theory. My bank account can't hold a million dollars. Let me know how that works out. It's <laughs> good theory. Uh, then the um, yeah, so the the wood trim. They also had uh, no sprinklers. They had no telephone in the building. Um, obviously, the fire escapes had no ladders. That's a bit of a glaring one. That's the big one to me. They had That's inadequate like the exits. They had one entrance. Titanic not having enough lifeboats. Yeah. There we go. <clears throat> there was a there was a lot of things, and then there was also a guy that came in from um, I can't remember what magazine it was, but it was like something like Fire Safety Magazine or something. I had mentioned the actual name in the episode. Yeah, you said it. I'm like that's not real. <laughs> it was a thing. It was a thing, and uh, he's like, this place is a disaster waiting to happen, and still nothing got done about it. They went to the there was an actual fire warden, which I guess is the employee who's in charge of making sure the building doesn't catch on fire. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing you got fired. <laughs> uh, we didn't. We didn't give up, folks. We're just trying to process this bad joke <laughs> to the audio listeners. <clears throat> um, but he was like, "Oh, I'm powerless. The owners won't let me do anything." It's like, "Well, then why are you here? Why are you here?" So he had six fire extinguishers that were not made for theater fires. They were made to put out, uh, like, a, a, if you if your fire pit was a little out of control, and it was like this, like throwable situation and um i think it was called kill fire at the time i think the kill fire is still a brand but at the time it was uh this i think it was like a a dry powder that you would throw into your fireplace and that would take care of it so i guess when the fire started they it was up on the drapery or like one of the curtains or whatever so they they got the kill fire thing like all right let's put out this fire and they throw it and just falls helplessly to the ground because they they couldn't even reach the fire it's just they were so under-equipped and then they had the asbestos curtain, and there was a problem with the asbestos curtain as well. So they're trying to drop it, and it's supposed to just like basically block the stage, keep all the fire backstage, crowd is safe, you can escape. First of all, they couldn't get the drop. But even if it did drop, they went for the cheap version of the asbestos cur- curtain, which was made with like um, like wood pulp. Perfect. Fireproof. Let's, just, let's make our fireproof <laughs> wooden curtain. <laughs> it's insane, but it but it was just enough where it like didn't it wasn't a violation. So it's like, like, okay, yeah, we do have it. Yes. It's made of wood, but it's going to stop the fire. It, but it was like, it was like a technicality where it's like, as long as you have it in the building and it has this much asbestos in it, um, which could have killed you anyways, but you know, but it, it's supposed longer. to stop the fire. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Just so many things wrong with that place. And, um, and uh, they found out the hard way for sure. Yeah. It's, Dude, it's just such a crazy story. And you, there was a story like this in Boston too. It was like the Tropicana nightclub or something like that, or the something, something like that type of word nightclub. Same exact stuff. Same story. Just they, they weren't going to catch on fire. It lit up fast. This was in like 1919, the Boca, something like that. I'll look it up at some point, but, uh, you just hear all these stories from like the late 1800s, these nightclubs, these, these theaters and just. It was all before they started. So they started like, like with OSHA regulations, not even OSHA, but like the, um, all the regulations that you have to do because of all of these old, when you're building a building, because of all of these old fires that happened, like, uh, everything has to be, um, steel, like steel, uh, beam, steel studs in, uh, mm-hmm. in commercial buildings nowadays, the, Doorways have to be even bigger. Stairways have to be bigger. All of these things were put into place because of these uh, crazy, crazy fires that happened from the time frame that you're talking about. So 
Um, that's the why. One, the I one I you, was just talking about, sorry, is the Coconut Grove fire, which is the one that took place in Boston. That was in 1942, and that's the second biggest, second deadliest single building fire in U.S. history. So I'm guessing the one you did is the first, and that killed nine, 492 people. And it's like all the same stories where people yeah. got stuck. Um, <laughs> I'm laughing at the comment. I'm not laughing at Rock Talk. Yeah, Fulpe says, I have, I have OCD. Please don't change screen positions. Well, I, I put it back to what we started at. That's why I put this Sorry, Fulpe. It's going to be all right. Sorry about it. We're fine. Stop it. <laughs> um, yeah, with that uh, fire in Boston, I actually, every time I was looking up pictures of the Iroquois fire, the Boston, um, the Coconut, Coconut, Grove. Coconut Grove one, that the pictures of that one would, would pop in. And I'm like trying to, so I, I now know the layout of the entire Coconut Grove fire because I know how many pictures I had to avoid. I'm like, no, 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 that's the, uh, that's the main entrance. The, uh, yeah. you know, I was trying to figure it out. Um, that's what they did the swing dancing. See? So, so Andrew Catholic slug says Coconut Grove is specifically why commercial doors must swing outwards. I heard the yes. same about uh, the Iroquois fire. Maybe it was a combination of the two. What year was Coconut Grove? 1942. Now Andrew's a firefighter, so I'm going to take his word for it, but I know a bunch of these regulations, yeah, for example, um, you know, you have to have the clearly marked exits, whole bunch of different regulations went into place because of the Iroquois fire, rightly so. Um, and they had to do a whole bunch of a whole bunch of changes uh, going forward. And the, cra- the craziest thing about this is basically nobody was held accountable for any of this stuff. They all got off on technicalities. Nobody was charged. None of the owners, none of the you know um, people that approved it. Nothing. So so nobody got charged. The only people that got charged were the thieves that went in afterwards and either stole rings off of the dead bodies, um, you know, jewelry, money. Some of those people got caught. And then I guess next door, I can't remember the name of the business, but they had set up like a makeshift morgue. Mm-hmm. And the people that owned that building or worked there at the time, they got caught for stealing jewelry and, and valuables off of these dead bodies as well. And they actually did get charged and go to prison for that. But at the same time, that much of a piece of shit. Yeah. But at the same time, I would have rather seen someone get held accountable for letting this stuff fly, you know, without, ever taking these precautions like this is your fault this could have been prevented and they they cheaped out and they rushed the production along just to get it done just so they could get this show mr bluebeard going because i know it was coming to town and they wanted to be the theater that had it and there's just no excuse now you have 600 dead people and you don't have a movie theater i mean a uh a theater because you you want to grab that uh pac-man frog comment there uh, she said, maybe I misheard what you said, but the current building is still haunted by the people that died in this fire. So it's location related, not the building has a history. Uh, yeah. So yes. You said that, yes. Uh, yes. And yes. Uh, or yes and no. So yes, it's haunted by people that died in the fire. Uh, the new theater is at the same exact location. Obviously, a lot of construction had to take place, but basically they said that it was completely rebuilt still a theater, but the new theater is haunted by ghosts from the fire. And it's supposed to be haunted by ghosts from way back when, when it was um, hair trigger, I think it was called the hair trigger block, which was like an old wild west rowdy area, uh, a lot of gambling and different kind of, you know, probably a lot of people getting shot, like basically wild west stuff. And so they consistent with the theory that it doesn't really matter what building, what the building is. It's the, the land that it's on. 
when it comes mm-hmm. down to like ley lines and, mm-hmm. and such, when you, you get a lot of things that are like X building is haunted because it's built on be- Indian burial grounds. Right. So it has nothing to do with the building. It has to do with the area that it's on. And the theory has it. A lot of that can have a lot to do with uh, the kind of, the kind of rocks that are underneath like um, granite and mm-hmm. um, limestone and stuff like that stores electricity. So I've the heard theory, that about the, uh, about the basement of this area. So they have the, um, is, is that it's built with one of those kinds of stones that, that holds that kind of energy. And uh, that's why there's still hauntings from back when it was hair trigger, um, hair trigger block. I, I want to get the name right, but I believe that was it. So they think that one of the ghosts there, that was the one that was like tormenting women down in the basement or whatever. Mm-hmm. So they, you know, they would get harassed and they would, but by a voice and they just can't figure out who's harassing them. And uh, they, uh, they believe that that was actually not even from someone that died in the fire. They think it was from someone before when that area was rowdy. Mr. Shaver says, uh, everyone knows his locations and just never seem to take off no matter what businesses comes there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we saw a lot of that in San Antonio was, uh, in, uh, also in, um, where was the other one in new Orleans, there was one place who was just no matter what business went there, the business would fail because of the hauntings that were taking place there. And basically they think it's like a cursed location and it can never take off just because of, um, just because of the ghosts that are there. And it makes no sense in these locations in the San Antonio one. And in the, uh, the, um, new Orleans one, these were like prime locations. There was one like this in Salem as well. I remember getting that on a ghost tour is these are prime locations. Every business around it thrives. So there's no real excuse except for the fact that, there's a ghost there or there's some kind of haunting or some, the energy is just off in that building. People don't like to be there. It can happen. It certainly can. So, and you've seen it happen in multiple locations, different cities and everything. So, so do we want to get into this St. Valentine's day massacre? We've spent a lot of time on the, on the fire. We have, and you're damn right. I do. I, but I, but I like that. Cause that, that was just, I mean, not that I, I'm always intrigued by mob stuff. I, mm-hmm. you know, I'm big into the mob history. But just knowing the St. Valentine's Day Massacre story, the the fire caught my attention a little more. So I'm glad we spent some time on that. Yeah, it's horrifying. And it's a quick event. And then, you know, lots of time of uh, haunting after that. And just to touch one more thing, some some things that reoccur in all these stories is once they start to do renovations on a place, that's when you've disturbed what's, you know – hiding underneath basically and you can disturb the spirits and basically when the place reopened um that's when it started again so i think it wasn't until 1998 i mean you had some ghost sightings right away like Mm -hmm. with the pictures and people looking back like oh this is a ghost but the actual like real hauntings i don't believe started until like 1998 so the same as the mcpike mansion where people would hear some stuff and then once they actually started hitting the renovations hard is when they really started getting a lot yeah. of activity. And and Edinburgh, Scotland. I mean, you hear this all the time with re- with renovations, but with Edinburgh, it was when the homeless guy crashed through and disturbed the grave. That's when like the poltergeist activity started going crazy over there. Mm-hmm. So It's kind of like a renovation. It's <laughs> doing something. It's changing <laughs> what they're used to. You know, It's waking them up. So I do want to talk about this. This, this episode was one of those rabbit hole episodes where I'm like, I'm going to touch on Al Capone. And you just can't. You just can't just jump into one story or I'm going to touch on the St. Valentine's day massacre. And it's like, okay, well I have all these gangsters with all these ties to these other gangsters and you have a turf war going on. And it was such a fun story to jump into. I we could have done five parts on this episode, but the, obviously the climax of it is the St. Valentine's day massacre. Um, 
but it's kind of it's kind of like one of those like murder mysteries where it starts at the end and then you go back, but then you also have the haunting. So it, it's it's got a lot to it. It's uh, yeah, I, I've done. A lot I knew of- nothing of his his haunting. I had no idea he was seeing ghosts and stuff. That's very interesting. That's kind of left out of a lot. Anytime you hear these stories, because yeah, I think a lot of these things they're just recapping the mob and what happened with the mob. Right. And, you know, the, 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 who killed who and what, who was the new boss? Who's the old boss? You know, why did these guys plot to have these guys killed and saying that Al Capone sees ghosts is just something that just completely throws the story sideways, but it also throws the story our way. So it tied in and it also tied into one of the craziest mob hits ever. So uh, you had a, this is know, the craziest mob hit ever. Yes. And it was so well done. Like, like they, well, they, they missed planned. the target. <laughs> Aside from that, <laughs> also true. Yeah, it was so well done. Aside, Aside from, from not being well done, it was really well done. <laughs> but mission accomplished because, sure, they didn't kill bugs, but they, they killed did, his business. They crippled his business. He never recovered. He died broke, and he basically was just out of the picture after that. So, correct, they didn't kill him. They killed a guy that looked exactly like him. I don't know if you guys saw that side by side picture. That was bugs and. Uh, I was a wine shank that looked just like him. Like it is Albert. Something. Was he the optometrist? I don't know. All these guys, when I was looking into them, like they had some really stable job and then they were also just mobsters. I'm like, no, one of them. So them. everyone there had ties to the, um, the gang in one way or another, even the mechanic. He was also, he would also crack the uh, safes for um, bank robberies. So he wasn't just, uh, there's a couple of things out there floating around. Like he was just a mechanic in the wrong place at the wrong time. That's even kind of how the movie uh, portrayed him he's like but i'm just the mechanic but he wasn't that's, that's he, what he, he was, said but no he was working for the gang i didn't go so far as to call him an actual gang member and I, there's a lot of varying accounts a lot of them say it was only yeah because he would do the mechanics work and they were using his shop i believe as like their false business or whatever like, like okay we're going to work we're going to go work at the garage i think so but then i read a couple things that were like they only went to that garage because um machine gun jack told them that was where they were going to meet to do uh, the bootleg liquor deal. And so I, there's a lot of conflicting reports on it. Um, I've read that there was five, five mobsters, five members of the North side gang that got taken out. And then two of them were just associates. You know, one was like a bookkeeper and one was the mechanic. If you even call it an associate. No, so there, 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 one of them was an optometrist and I can't find which one it was. And he was not even an associate. He just hung out with the gang and he liked to hang out with the gang and brag about it to his friends that he'd hang out with the North side gang. Kind of an associate, right? No. I mean, an associate works with the gang doing gang stuff. This guy just used to play cards with them and stuff. Oh yeah. He was like the gambling guy, right? He might've been, I can't find his name. I'm actually looking at, I think what might be the worst they're all the worst. This. They're all the worst. This is what the all, history channel. Is and they're like, they're not, there's like no names. Like, what are you doing? But, um, yeah. So that guy, he was, he was an optometrist and he was also, he liked to hang out and brag that he hung out with the gang. I so, want to touch on this, uh, this question real quick before we get too far away. So, uh, Catherine says, uh, Capone was supposed to have been haunted in Alcatraz. Does it relate to the massacre? Or was that after his first stint in prison? This haunting was supposed to carry with him until his death. So whether he is still being haunted by Jack, not Jack, uh, Jimmy, or whether it was something else in Alcatraz or the 
the scientific side of it is this man had syphilis his entire life and that just Ooh, ate away joke. his brain basically and he started losing his his, his Ooh, mind. my joke that he was haunted by Jimmy and syphilis for the rest of his life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's uh that's the other thing is was he actually seeing ghosts or was he just but, but that ghost home? was from the St. Valentine's Day massacre to answer the question. Yes. He brought it up in the episode that that she specifically saw one of the men from that from that hit. Correct, but that was not Alcatraz. So this might have thrown you off because I showed a mugshot from Alcatraz when I said he was doing a one year prison stint. But I think the one year prison stint was Georgia. That was yeah, not no Alcatraz not, was. You don't, you don't do one year in Alcatraz. He was he was in a he lot was, of places. He was in yeah. Alcatraz for tax evasion. So he eventually he first went to prison. So that's when he did his like fourteen year bid or whatever it was. Yeah, there. he got eventually got when he, he lost his right to appeal. They transferred him to Alcatraz. Right. However, he didn't die in jail. And a lot of people no, think he did not die in he jail. He died in jail of syphilis. No, he died back at his mansion in Florida, which that place is amazing. As you could imagine, he got handed a $70 million operation. This man was raking in, I, I think it was like like $60 million a year or something like that. So you did the, the math on inflation of what it was at that time. What it would be today, this, this guy had endless amounts of money and his apartment sucked i showed it that was an actual picture of his apartment in chicago i mean how much better could it be in chicago it was a hotel right well no so this was his actual apartment he also had the hotel that was his headquarters and he had an entire floor of that hotel right. so obviously that was a much nicer place but the the hotel where uh his bodyguard or his chauffeur ended up seeing the ghost of jimmy was at that weird chicago apartment which just looked like a like a piece of shit apartment it was probably nice inside and, um, but that was, uh, that was a little surprising to me when I pulled the picture, I was like, this guy's worth how much money? And mm. he lives in that apartment, but you know, he also had the mansion in Florida, which is absolutely gorgeous. And, uh, he's haunted a by a little, a little disappointed. You didn't try to do a 1930s gangster voice in this episode. I was more so thinking of doing 1930s gangster music, but I was already doing so many different things to tweak stuff with the show that I was like, I got my hands full. I also started on this episode on Sunday. So I was like, I gotta, I gotta crank this out if I'm going to get this done by Tuesday. Yeah. The, the subject switch was a little something for me. So, uh, that is, uh, that's Chicago. I'm sure we could do a whole part lot more one. in Chicago, but <laughs> we're, I, I we're really just going to say part one because I only picked two locations in Chicago yeah. and it was more than I could handle. So there's, there's so much in Chicago that there's no way we don't, yeah, come, there's no way come back to Chicago at some point. Several times. So I would say I want to visit these locations, but both of them are gone. So they demolished the uh, the garage. It's just a parking lot. Or it's like a, I showed a few pictures of it. It's just like a field next to a nursing home now. So that's completely gone. I would visit the Mobster Museum in Las Vegas. That looked really cool. And they have the whole wall reconstructed there. Oh, that was the other thing we should probably touch on that is that these bricks. The haunted bricks. The haunted bricks. So they were supposed to be cursed. Uh, this guy, uh, Patty, he, he bought most of the bricks after a lot of them got returned because they were cursed and haunted. And this is one of those things where like, oh, well, you know, I got, I lost all my money and uh, I had bad fortune. It's like, well, maybe you should stop buying bricks. At auction. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you're not making the best financial decisions. Dude, so, I want those bricks. It's not bad fortune. It's bad decision making. <laughs> hey, I would buy those. You wouldn't buy those bricks? I, I would I would buy a brick, but I wouldn't blame it on I, I don't know. So maybe they were cursed. Perhaps. Well, perhaps I think so. I think one of our Patreon things once we start getting that going is we are well, gonna talk about the, Dave's house. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah. No, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna hit on some of these cursed objects in the history of them, and just some of the stuff like because we've talked about some cursed objects on this on this show, specifically the Hope Diamond, and also these bricks as well. Yeah, we could do a, a whole episode on those. Sorry, I had to show that comment. Conflict is near. He said Jesse is Bay. That's right, conflict. Love that man. Anyways, uh, we, yeah. So the, the, and that's a whole different. That we haven't really gone into that area too much on our episodes. So we can definitely get into some of those. Um, and if we're gonna go to Vegas to visit the Mobster Museum to check out this wall, we could also visit uh, Zach Baggins' place where he has all those haunted items. Definitely super interested to see a lot of those things. And. Um, that's all that like I said, that's a whole avenue we haven't really gone down is we've touched on a little bit with the haunted guitar from that one episode, right? Where spirits can attach themselves to certain objects. And uh Christian did a good job of explaining that, you know, how those kind of things can happen, even if they didn't own the object, they could still attach to them. So right. definitely something we could do. But it, it eventually to go back to the bricks, this guy got the bricks and he put them in his his nightclub in uh Vancouver. And basically put them behind a urinal, like behind a glass wall. And it just really just seemed like the bet, the wrong move with that. Thought it would be like a tourist attraction. Some people would, they said you could, they would like aim at it while they're taking a piss. (laughs) I don't really know if that was his goal there, but eventually, I don't know if he sold them to the mob museum or if he just sent them there because he figured they weren't doing very good in the bathroom. And, uh, is that how you aim when you pee? You just throw your finger guns up. Is that your strategy there? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I make a lot of messes. Anyways, so the, uh, <laughs> the wall was reconstructed in, Ve- reconstructed in Vegas. They have a whole video display that they, I was watching some videos of it. They have this like projector screen that's down and they show like a video all about the St. Valentine's massacre. And then like the, the screen raises and the walls right there. And it's pretty cool. And then the rest of the projection is on the wall. And um, definitely looks like a really cool museum that I want to go to. So go check that out. You can go see the, uh, you can go see the Valent- St. Valentine's Day Massacre wall for yourself if you're in Vegas. Yeah, yeah. That'll, be, that'll be one of our things we hit in Vegas. When we go, we'd have to find a haunting. I'm sure the Flamingo is haunted, um, would be my guess. But There's a whole lot of them uh, in Vegas that are haunted, especially like old Vegas. Yeah. So, we'll do that for sure. Uh, yeah. Uh, what do we got coming up, ladies and gentlemen? Gettysburg. The Ghost of Gettysburg next week. We are going to take a look at the most bloody battle that ever occurred on in the Western Hemisphere uh, in history. More deaths than more American deaths than Normandy. Uh, just an wow. absolute bloodbath that was Gettysburg and the perpetual hauntings um, that occurred there still to this day. So there's, there's another one where there's just a lot there. And it's a really, I feel like, I mean, we all learned about Gettysburg. We all know the history there, but my God, that was a bloodbath. Mm-hmm. That kind of, yeah. I feel I like started, I've started watching more civil war movies lately and the brutality of that war is just, you know, when you read about it in high school and the history books, it doesn't get into the details, but my God, that was, that was ugly. I'm sure. I mean, all war is ugly, but that one, yeah, I can only imagine. So that's, yeah. uh, that's Gettysburg. And then Rob, what do we have coming up after that? So after that, we have an episode where we actually went and investigated, which is Stowe, Vermont. 
Yes. And it's the story of a bridge and a inn. And both had their moments, but that haunted bridge especially was... That was I, Yeah, I don't want to spoil anything because I want to save it for the episode. But yeah, that was uh, the bridge. I, I was more scary than the hotel in my in my opinion. I will say that the bridge, <clears throat> and if you actually go to our TikTok and look for the clip, the most scared I've ever seen Dave in my life was on that <laughs> bridge, and I'm not kidding. <clears throat> so it's hard, it's hard to get Dave hard to get Dave scared. Uh, I want to touch on this comment before we go. Uh, Robert Dahl is crazy story. (laughs) I'm not sure where it is, but you should look into Robert the Doll. Some seriously scary stuff with that doll. I've seen the movie. Uh, I don't know if that movie has anything to do with the actual story. Most of these movies don't. No, the Robert the Doll story is crazy, and I do think that that is at the museum that Baggins has. It is, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't think we could look into acquiring the doll, but we could look into talking about it. If he's nice, he might let us borrow it for the episode. I don't think that's what she was asking, but (laughs) yeah, I think I think this whole haunted object thing. I think that's something that we spin into like our October marathon. We're going to try to put out a whole bunch of content once we hit October. There's the haunted chair. Did you hear about the haunted chair? I have heard about the haunted chair. Yeah, (laughs) I have heard about the haunted chair. Hundred percent. So I want to touch about, talk about this real quick uh, to anyone from TikTok that has joined us. We talked about it last week where we're like, oh, we had a lot of success on TikTok. Well, <laughs> let's talk about that times a thousand because it has gone absolutely bananas. We're up to uh, – we're approaching 45,000 followers on TikTok. I believe last week we were at 6,000. And we had uh, one of our videos blew up, our first video to go over a million views on TikTok. So if you haven't yet – Follow us on TikTok. Just search Hometown Ghost Stories. If you guys are coming here from TikTok, I want to thank you guys so much for the uh, for helping putting that video out there and helping to blow up the page all together. All of our videos uh, across the board all have uh, done really well because of the success and because of your support. So thank you guys so much for following on TikTok. And um, this show, obviously, if you're here watching it on YouTube, we're also, uh, we have a podcast. So go check it out on iTunes. Leave a review on iTunes. We have gotten more reviews. Oh, we should, read them. we should read some reviews. Let, let's read the uh, let's read the big one that we got. Yes. So just keep talking. I'll pull it up. Let's do that. So if you guys haven't left the review on iTunes yet, make sure you swing over to iTunes Podcast and uh, give us a little five star review and drop a comment. Tell us what you think about the show, and or leave a funny comment. Those we got a few of those as well. So and we're on Spotify as well. Yes, yes, we are. So we got a we got a review from K Gavin. He says he's a night stalker. Not Richard Ramirez kind, you know. He's he's a night stalker. He puts stuff on shelves. Oh, stock! That's completely different. (laughs) (laughs) I'm actually glad you clarified that. Hi, yeah, I'm a night stalker. I'm a night stalker. (laughs) Fifteen times. (laughs) So he says I'm a night stalker and needed more podcasts to listen to since I'm caught up with the ones I listen to. And I was like, ghost stories sound like fun to listen to. I tried one podcast and it was just weird. But I gave this one a shot and actually really like it. I like the story time of it. I wish the creepiness can keep going and more co- more cool ghost encounters. Didn't realize this was a new show. San Antonio episode is my favorite since I'm in Texas and located in Corpus Christi, which isn't far. And I guess I never noticed the Emily Morgan Hotel either. So that's very funny. much appreciate getting the five star review from him. Yeah, Thanks for that- listening. And we are new, but. That is a common thing. It was people not noticing the Emily Morgan Hotel. Yeah, so, not the so, first time I've heard that, which is Rob, crazy. Yeah. Because Rob had mentioned biggest, it on the show. 
yeah. monster of a building, the most, but it's, I mean, it's next to the Alamo. So you're looking for, when you're there, you're looking at the Alamo. Right. Yeah, Robert mentioned it on the show. And then Christian, who we brought on as a guest on the show also mentioned that he's like, don't feel bad. I didn't notice the Emily Morgan either. I'm like, how? <laughs> but again, it, it's a city with a lot of buildings. And if you don't know what a specific building it is, then, you know, maybe it's you don't pay attention. Building. It's just another building. So uh, that's that. So that was uh, that was Chicago, probably part one of Chicago, because there's so much more to go over. But the uh, St. Valentine's Day massacre and the Iroquois theater fire, both absolutely insane stories. Thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, we'll be back next week with the Gettysburg episode, and then we head to Vermont for another episode that had a live investigation that we checked out ourselves. A very cold, very fun weekend for us there. Yes. Uh, and I just want last shout out. I want to give a shout out to Ray Brown for our amazing professional disclaimer that we had in the beginning. Let's just play it again. Let's play it again, guys. Let's play it. Hometown Ghost Stories contains serious and often distressing events and is not intended for all audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. So good. You guys want to play it again? One more time. Most legit disclaimer ever. Love it. Love it. So I've worked for Ray for a long time at the radio station. And uh, uh, big shout out to Ray. So thank you guys for tuning in. And uh, that'll pretty much do it for this week. Thank you guys. And we'll, uh, we'll see you next time.